Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome everyone, welcome, welcome. Coming up today with her new book, described as a love affair with travel, cooking and Italia, Mary Ann Esposito, she's the host of the longest running continuous cooking show on American TV called Ciao Italia. And her new book is called Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy. A lot of fun. So stay tuned for that. Some great recipes in there too. First, we'll hear from a writer who's often revered by her peers and readers alike for the way she tackles big subjects that begin with capital letters. She writes about what most of us don't want to think about, alcoholism, loss, jealousy. She is the inimitable Anne Lamott and the author of the New York Times bestsellers, uh, Hallelujah Anyway, Small Victories, Grace Eventually, and others, including, of course, Bird by Bird. She's also written seven novels. She's a past recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and an inductee to the California Hall of Fame. And we sat down earlier this month and discussed some of the topics from her new book. I'm going to bring you that conversation in just a moment. The book is called Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Anne told me that this past year has been very difficult because of what's happening politically, but it's also been the happiest year of her life. Her son is seven years clean and sober. Her grandson lives with her 50% of the time. And two years ago, she fell in love uh, with a wonderful man and is now about to become a blushing bride at the age of 65. So she said even when life is at its bleakest, when we are, as she puts it, doomed, stunned, exhausted and over-caffeinated, the seeds of rejuvenation are there. There's light, warmth, love and transformation, which illustrates that all truth is paradox And this turns out to be a reason for hope. And that, of course, led to her writing almost everything Notes on Hope. We talked about her perspectives on joy, on hate, jealousy, and, of course, hope. Here's our conversation. I want to talk about the book title here because it's called Almost Everything Notes on Hope. And uh, you say just before your 61st birthday, you decided to write a list for your grandson and niece. And it began, my dearest, here is almost everything I know about almost everything that I think applies to almost everyone that might help you someday. Um, So is that what led to this book, that list that you were writing for your grandson and niece? Yes, it was. It was three years ago. I wrote it and I posted it on Facebook. And it just went viral, like five million people read it because it had, I think, kernels of truth in it about who we are and about um, about what works and what really doesn't. And there's so little truth in the popular culture. You know, it's just so much, so much damaging information about women and women's bodies and and about how fame and fortune and success will fill all the Swiss cheese holes inside of you. And I just wanted to give my young people that are here um, everything I could think of that was true that might actually happen so that 
there's a chapter, uh, there's one chapter um, that I wrote specifically for myself called Don't Let Them Get You to Hate Them, because um, I was getting so toxic on hate in the, in the political climate that we find ourselves in, and I realized that People have always said to me, if you've got a problem, go look in the mirror, that uh, you're the only person you can probably change. And so I started looking at how how much less hatred and spewage I could add to the world if I did some of the deep dive into my own uh, victimized self-righteousness and my own judgment. And... Um, so I started to do some really deep healing around that, and I feel different and a lot better. I wrote a chapter specifically for my 15-year-old niece because all teenagers think they're defective and um, right. different and losers, and I wanted her to know not to compare her insides to other people's outsides because if she got to know all the popular people in, uh, in high school, it would turn out that they're really just like them, uh, that they're really just like us that they're scared sometimes they're they're um they're really sad sometimes they're deeply confused sometimes it's the human condition and i wanted to tell both my grandson and my niece that the self-respect that they so want the culture to provide for them their colleagues in school or their teachers or whoever whoever they end up working for uh, it's an inside job that it's just not out there i said in the book that um, the only thing from outside that can fill you and save you is if you're waiting for a donor organ, right. but that right. if you are very, very longing for self-esteem and meaning, it's inside. You already have it, but you just have to um, trust a few people enough to let you do that deep dive into what is true about you and for you. Right. So, yeah, that list inspired me. It was one page, and I wanted to expand it into a full-size book on hope. Yeah, and I, I received the book yesterday. I received it last night when I got back, and I read it cover to cover, and I think it speaks to, it will speak to so many people. And um, you said that when you were writing this list, it led you to thinking about, well, what do I know? And you say that you know two specific truths about yourself. And one, that over the course of your life, you've often idly thought about jumping off a rooftop or from a speeding car. You've always been very open about struggles around anxiety and, and paranoia that you have. Um, but you said that changed for you somewhat when you were talking to a Coptic minister and you told him about those thoughts and he just went, oh, who doesn't have those <laughs> thoughts? Uh-huh, yeah. So what was it that triggered something? I just felt, I, my parents did not have a happy marriage, and there was a lot of anxiety. Uh, there was alcohol and black belt codependence. My mother was from Liverpool, and so uh. she had to, um, that English conviction that you just had to get the surface right and carry on. And so we weren't really um, encouraged to share feelings that were uncomfortable ones. And um, um, we... I was a middle child, and I, I felt in the position of trying to help and rescue everybody in the family from the unhappiness or the pressure, and somehow all of this um, manifested as, I think, an exhaustion, or uh, I never had d depression, but I had severe anxiety, 
is just the other side of it. And um, I remember being what skyscrapers we used to call were like, you know, 18 stories high. But we went to a, a dentist in San Francisco and we were on the 14th floor and I would, and that was back in the 50s and 60s when, when windows opened and mm-hmm. I would feel, I would feel this inexorable pull to open the window. And I was a little girl. My mom and my, whichever brother was getting his teeth looked out would be in the, de- went in with the dentist and I would have to pick up highlights for children and just immerse myself in it to get the thinking to stop. And I just always had it. And then about 25 years ago, I had this brilliant therapist and he said, the secret of having that is what makes it so um, magnetic for you. And makes, and if you tell whoever you're with that you're idly thinking of jumping, um, it'll break the trance for you. So uh, it turned out to be true. And I, I was in Egypt at, on a cliff, very high up with this Coptic minister. And I said, I have to tell you, whenever I'm really high up, I, I feel like jumping. And he said, oh, who doesn't? And it just... <laughs> You know, it made me laugh for one right. thing, and he was right. so casual about it, and such a brilliant spiritually, um, you know, just such a wise, loving man that I thought, oh, just it gave me such relief, and it just made me laugh. And you know, laughter is carbonated holiness, and if I get my sense of humor back. I'm home free. Right. Excellent sense of, sense of humor is huge, I think, in everything. Um, in, in the chapter on humans, you, you begin that chapter by saying almost everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, scared, and yet designed for joy. And you write that your partner says joy and curiosity are the same thing. And I was thinking about that and I thought they are definitely very closely linked. How do you think about that? Um. Well, he's, Neil has really convinced me that joy and curiosity and wonder and innocence and presence are all so interrelated and that it's hard to feel as um, stricken and kind of um, uh, entranced with scared feelings if you're feeling curious about what's right there, what's right there around you, what's out the window, what's, what's, um, you know, what the two kids in the other room are up to, and they're always up to something. Um, and if you're curious, it is just such a beautiful way to approach the world. I mean, first of all, I was raised to, um, to pretend that I already knew enough to to answer any question that came up and certainly to do well on any test that I might be given. And um, and that was the main thing, that I was raised to do really, really well on tests and to know the answer. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just so crippling. And so it's just so uh, darkens life to have to believe you know a lot already and also to believe that you're going to be quizzed instead of being given permission to find out about life, to do life and breath and, and wonder and to look up and to look up into the trees and to, and to, and to look down at the sow bugs in, that are around all the rose petals and to, and to just be entranced by that instead of to be plugged into your phone or, and or your TV and or your iPad all at once. So, um, curiosity, you know, it's something so 
so precious from childhood that we lose. I 100% I agree with you. Uh, you can't be bored if you're curious. You can't That's be right. uh, unhappy if you're constantly learning and, and exploring. So a lot to be said for curiosity. And since you just mentioned phones and iPads, I, I want to share chapter four because it consists of just 15 words. And I think we'd all be so much happier and healthier and much more engaged if we observed those 15 words which are almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes including you yeah so and, and I, I believe that with every ounce of my being that well first of all i really can't do very many things that are technological and um so i'm always calling help hotlines and they always say okay they're always really nice because you're not their mother and um <laughs> And they always say, um, have you tried unplugging it? And I'd say 90% of the time that is all you need to do. And then with myself, with me, when I'm stressed or struggling or in a mood or enraged at some politician or some situation, if I put everything down and I convince the dog to go out for one more walk with me and I go out for eight minutes... I come back a different person. Mm -hmm. It's like getting spritz with a plant mister. I can so relate to that because if I'm at my computer and, and I'm on deadline and things are going wrong, uh, my dog senses it and he'll come up and he actually twizzles my chair away from my computer. <laughs> uh, and so that little break there, uh, you know, it, it just makes all the difference. So I'm all for unplugging myself. Um, but I know, I, I know many people, um, they feel this compulsion to stay connected. And especially my friends who are writers and authors, they say, I have to have a platform. My publisher wants me to have a platform. And, and then, of course, we become to that endorphin kick that we receive every time we hear a new ping on our phone, etc. So um, do you feel that kind of pressure from your publishers, from your readers? I don't feel pressure from them. I, I feel um, so vulnerable to that particular um, addictive system and pattern, you know, of, um, of getting more, getting more, getting more, getting more, getting more people, getting more this, getting more that. Um, and it, it's, it's really crazy making. And I think that there's two endorphins. One is the, it's the same endorphins that have to do with how addictive hate can be yeah. or how addictive a crisis in your family can be. Yeah. And the two drugs are the adrenaline of hate and of getting more and more and more people on your quote, your platform and, um, and the endorphins of feeling like you've gotten more people, you're good, or you're some, some would-be publisher is really excited, or, or this or that, or this means you're a person of value, or you're making sense, or you're getting a bigger audience. And, and you know, with a family crisis, it's the same thing. Those of us who were raised to save and fix and rescue people, like I was, um, you get the drugs. In a family crisis, you get the adrenaline and you get the endorphins and it's crazy making and at some point you need to or you have the opportunity to look at each other and look at yourself and to say this isn't how I'm going to live 
and you could set aside 15 minutes to work on your platforms and you could set aside 15 minutes to go down to the dog park which is eight minutes away you know so right. 15 minutes right. and um, and the dog goes crazy and it's so happy it's like I can choose to be obsessed and toxic which I love because it's very addictive and or I can do joy and sometimes I feel like look can I get back to you on that <laughs> I might want to do the adrenalizing and uh, addictive um, instead of the joy and the serenity and the peace of a slow walk with a overweight dog so um, it's my uh, that's why we start up I I believe if you've got a problem look in the mirror I'm not going to be able to change the conversation in Washington I am able to help people register I am able to help people um, uh, understand how important it is to vote for people who belong in climate science. I can help. I have a good car. I can help people get to the polls. But I'm not going to change what they think about me, but I can change what I think about me. And if I think about me that I'm a person of of value and and um, and goodness, whether or not I'm getting building a bigger platform, then I have to offer that to people. And I can say to people gently, everything will work again if you unplug it, including you. Can I help you unplug for 10 minutes so um yeah, I love it. I, I, I totally agree uh, with what you're saying there. Uh, my guest is Anne Lamott, New York Times bestselling author. We're talking about her new book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. Um, you, we talked, we've touched a little on hate. Uh, you have a chapter on hate called Don't Let Them Get You to Hate Them. And you write that uh, hate is a massive mood alterer, like a speedball of heroin and cocaine or at least like sugar, swift, stimulating, toxic. Hate is the worst emotion, uh, second only to acute jealousy. Um, this changed for you. You say you had an intimate relationship with hate, and it changed for you when you heard words from your pastor. And I wonder if you'd talk to us about that. I actually think we need to send your pastor on tour <laughs> after reading this. But you say it was really a game, yeah, I, a game changer. Amazing, sermons I've ever heard. But um, let's see, I realized I was just totally toxic last spring, spring of 2017. And um, and I say in, the, in almost everything that two things came along, two people, one was Martin Luther King on Twitter. And he was, it was his, his uh, line that, 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 that um, hate can't cast out hate, only love can cast out hate. And he paraphrased what Booker T. Washington, the great abolitionist, said that that hating someone just diminishes your soul and your strength and your very being and heart. And that was one thing that started to get me thinking. And then there was this little boy in my Sunday school class named Cooper. And I was just talking to him, and I said, Cooper, do you believe that goodness and God exist and that we're made of that and that we're made for that and that we're surrounded by and can turn to that? And he looked at me and said, well, about 20, about 40%. And I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. But I also started to think about what if I could reduce my level of hate by 40%. And I set out to do that. And so I still have a tremendous hostility towards some of the politicians and our some of our leaders, but it's about 40% better. And I don't think I'm spewing as much as, I don't think I'm adding as much 
toxicity to the common well, to the common good as I was. And I'm still rising up and I'm still doing all the things I've ever done as an activist, but I'm not spewing and I'm not helping create more hate. I'm listening and I'm saying, boy, I was there. I tried a few things and I, um, I've gotten a little bit better. Right. And you, you say ultimately that has increased your self-respect. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead. There, there's a line I like in the um, book that when the, the hatred fuses you with the people that you hate and you start to become them. Mm -hmm. And it's like in Night of, Night of the Living Dead where you're both the, the carrier and the disease and the, the latest victim, the newest victim. And... Um, and, oh, my God, my mind is not blank. Tell me, I've been on book tour. That's Tell <laughs> well, me again what, what the question was. No, I was just, it, it, it helped to increase your self-respect when you oh, became intimate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're in spew and if you're the zombie in Night of the Living Dead and you're looking for a new victim so that you can get a, you know, you can get some release from your own hatred and discomfort and isolation, then it really eats at you. And, and you know... Whatever your parents taught you about yourself, whatever the culture taught you, that you're you're a child of, of love or goodness or of life, and some of your aunts and, and a couple of your friends have just thought you were the most delightful, good person, and you can either believe your bad mind or you can believe those few people, but when you're going around being one of the zombies, it's very hard to walk with your shoulders back and your head high, and so... I talk a lot about the the healing that comes with telling your bad secrets to people, whether it's that you're hating, hating on some people or that you haven't been able to forgive yourself for this, you haven't been able to forgive your, your, your oldest uncle or whatever. And as soon as you tell someone, they never recoil and say, oh, my God, you fought that or you're not able to do that. They go, you know what? I'm exactly the same. I, mean, I had the same experience, and, and things are a little better now. And, you know, the reason the whole system of humanity works is, at all is that we're not all crazy on the same day. So you share right. your secrets with someone, and they share what, what what steps they took, what action steps they took, what medicine, what psychic or spiritual medicine they took, and how they got their sense of self back. When you have your sense of self back, you don't need to spew and condemn as much because we spew and condemn because we have this terrible self-esteem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, since they're so connected, I want to also touch on jealousy because you wrote in one of your other books, um, Grace Eventually, that jealousy has always been your cross you say the weakness and woundedness in me that has most often caused me to feel ugly and unlovable like the bad seed so i wonder how you've dealt with that over the years uh well you know i wrote a whole chapter on it in bird by bird because it's such a deep um deep sickness in every writer i know because and also just in a lot of people that I know, the jealousy of, because we think that other people's outsides mean that they're doing really well and they feel they feel um, really good self-esteem and they feel uh, well-being a lot of the time that's being denied us because we don't have a big enough audience or we haven't been able to keep our weight down or, or find a good wife or whatever it is. And, um, and that jealousy just eats away at you. I remember having it at such an early age. 
I had this crazy, wiry, kinky hair, and I was just so, so, so jealous of girls that had smooth, um, soft hair or big, beautiful teeth or whose families had money. And, um, um, and when I became a writer, I would just see that these awful writers who happened to also be just awful people <laughs> would have a huge bestseller or, uh, um, or uh, you know, they'd get on the Today Show or, um, or whatever. And, um, and it's so painful. Oh, my God, it's all this stuff of, of fairy tales, right? Right. That the horrible people in the fairy tales are the, the, um, the evil, ste- jealous stepmother that kills or, or um, put, puts the person in a trance or tells everybody that she's dead or, um, or whatever. And um, so I, you know, I started talking about it. And again, that is where a lot of the, um, uh, the piece came from. Was tell- I wrote about it in Bird by Bird. You should never admit, you're not supposed to admit that you're jealous. It's the worst thing you can be. People would say these stupid bumper sticker things to me. They'd say, well, there's one, there's many streams and one river. We all drink from the same river. And I'd say, you know what, that is really not helpful because I am feeling awful. I'm feeling like I'm an awful person and I'm scared and, um, and I hate it. I'm miserable. And, and, um, and then other people say, oh, you know, I have that too. And what happened, what helped me was to become aware of it and to just seek wise counsel around it, to start forgiving myself for having it. Most of the stuff that I've needed to heal from has had to do with being unable to forgive myself for having that. Right, you know, so you right. get these really deep wounds in childhood of not thinking you're good enough and or you're um, perfect enough. And... Um, and then you have shame about having me, about being so wounded. And so to say to people that I trust, you know, like three really safe people in the world, I feel this way, I have this, I'm, and I keep, they would always say, oh, I'm so glad you told me. Thank you for trusting me. I have that too. I'm not stuck in it right now. I made a list of this. I won't forgive myself for. I made a list of the areas in which I think I'm completely inadequate and failing. Right. You know, a lot of people that are wanting to write tell their families that they've started writing and the, and the families want to know if they've found an agent yet. You know, and they've been writing for a week. And uh, all those areas where your parents or the teachers or culture said, what do you have to show for this, created in us this lack of knowledge that are just wanting to create is, is magic. It's wonderful, and it's going to be part of the way we nourish ourselves is by writing. Or, and, um, and so the jealousy started to get better the more I talked about it. The jealousy chapter in Bird by Bird is just about the most popular thing I've ever written, except for the hate chapter and almost everything. Well, you know? that, that just it's, shows you how... People are starved for truth. Uh, yes, and that just shows you how closely they're connected and how we're all so very similar. Whichever side of the fence we're sitting, whatever color we are, right? Uh-huh, exactly. So I want to, and that was a good segue into the chapter on writing because I had a couple of uh, questions based on this. And, and you begin that chapter with, so writing, what a bitch. Has it ever got easier for you? 
Does it ever get, has it got easier for you? Oh, has it ever gotten easier? It's so much easier for me because I've been doing it for 45 years now, and I know the habits. And what my father, who was a writer, taught me the habits. The habits are that you sit down and you keep your butt in the chair, no matter whether you're in the mood or not. I'm very rarely in the mood. And um, that my father's story is the title of that book, which Bird by Bird, which came about when my older brother had a term paper due, hadn't started it, didn't love school, and it was due the next day. And this is in fourth grade, so this is 55 years ago. My dad sat down with him and said, just take it bird by bird, buddy. You know, just write, read about pelicans and then tell us in your own words about pelicans. Mm. And then read about Oregon juncos and um, tell us about them in your own words and then draw a picture. And then read about, you know, sandpipers. And so that was the most valuable thing I ever heard about writing. And I've always taught my writing students to write bird by bird and to, to buy one-inch picture frames and to just write as much as they could see in a one-inch picture frame and um, and then to let themselves write it really, really badly. And, and um, I still need to remind myself of that all the time. I still need to have a one-inch picture frame on my desk because you sit down and all the internalized voices and you say you need to, you should know what you're doing. How can you know what you're doing if you're on page one, you know, or if you're on chapter eight, how can you know how the novel ends until you write it, until you write a really bad draft of it? And then, um, but now when I sit down, I'm really strict and stern with myself, but I also use bribes and threats, and I say you really need to get this done. If I write a Facebook thing, I I think it's encouraging for people to know that I write terrible first drafts and that everything they like, that anything they might like that's on Facebook or anywhere at all began as a terrible first draft, that every writer I know, and I'm close to lots of writers, that everything they've written, that everything they've read that they love began as a terrible first draft. But we do it, and that's the difference. We just do it. We sit down. We keep our butts in the chairs. We let ourselves write badly. And something something starts to happen, you know, right. when you're a little ways into it, which is that you and the material get get going. And, uh, and then you're there. You might as well keep going for a little while longer. <laughs> well, Al, it's such a pleasure talking with you, but the book's on hope, and I can't let you go without asking you a question on hope, can I? <laughs> so, and I, I love this. Um, the book is called Almost Everything Notes on Hope, and you talk about, um, you share a story of uh, Bob Ross, the artist. He has a television show, The Joy of Painting, and uh, you say he reminds us that when we make big mistakes on canvas, we can turn them into birds, uh, and yeah. he does get very excited about that if yeah. you've ever seen his show. Now it's a bird. You you might have started out trying to to paint a rose. Now it's a bird. That's sort of my battle cry, that the way that we've gotten anywhere spiritually or artistically or in terms of being able to be present for our life and to really experience it and to be fully alive is by making mistakes. And, you know, it's so scary to make mistakes if you were raised to be a perfectionist. And it's really the, the, the most wonderful thing we can do is to let ourselves make more mistakes and messes and and get back up and say with joy oh my god now it's a bird
Right. I, some of the best things in life have, have originated as a mistake. And you say Completely. hope changes as we get older. How has hope changed for you as you've got older? Well, I didn't, uh, I think one great phrase that I live by is that expectations are, are resentments under construction, you know, and if I have a lot of expectations, both about the election and my family, my marriage next year, my, the success or, or failure of the book or whatever, then it, I just get these resentments that are, they're premeditated resentments. And if I don't have expectations, if I just show up and breathe and I bring my very best self, you learn over time, I'd say it starts around 40, that all you can do is, is your best, that you get to do your best, you get to start over, you get to put writing aside that isn't really going anywhere, you get to um, you get to turn it all into birds. Birds are great, you know, I mean, and um, uh, I think, you know, I was 35 years old when I discovered that a B-plus was a good grade. I really was. I had an infant with colic, and I had never heard that a B-plus was a good grade. I thought when we got a good grade, a B-plus in our family, our parents wanted to know if we could bring it up to an A-minus and even better an A. And, um, and so you start to unlearn so much of the stuff you learned as a child, you learn, you learn to waste more time when you're 40, right? right you don't have right. the energy for one thing <laughs> by the time you're 50. You learn to stare off into space more. Um, that's one of the most important things I have to teach writing students, stare off into space more, waste more time, waste more paper. And, um, and you learn that everybody's in the same boat, and that's just so incredibly helpful. And my guest there, Anne Lamott, uh, award-winning, best-selling author. Her new book is Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. This would make a great gift book for someone. And I want to leave you with a couple of quotes here that are my favorites. For the writers out there, Anne Lamott uh, said, You own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. And then for everyone... Uh, another of my favorites uh, that she's often heard quoting, I decided that the most subversive, revolutionary thing I could do was to show up for my life and not be ashamed. Again, Anne Lamott, my guest, her book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. And please do stay with us when we come back. We're joined by another tour de force, Marianne Esposito. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. 
brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. What if you could overcome depression without the fogginess and other side effects of pharmaceuticals? Forensic and clinical psychologist Dr. Ronald J. Frey shares how in Feel Better. And yogi and author of Fierce Kindness, Melanie Salvatore August returns to share tips on how to enjoy the holiday season with practical tools to help you stay grounded and sane during family reunions. Join us Mondays at New Pacific Time. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found. We'll be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Loss and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today going our own way every day alternative talk 1150 and welcome back everyone welcome back you're listening to conversations live with vicky st Clair. and my next guest is chef author and tv personality mary ann esposito she's the creator and host of the nationally televised pbs series ciao italia with Marianne esposito and uh, she's the author of 12 cookbooks, most recently the one um, that we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy. And uh, lots of uh, fascinating stuff in her background, so I'm going to bring her on and we can learn some more. Marianne Esposito, welcome. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks so much for having me. You know, everybody loves to talk about food, right? They do. <laughs> I love to eat it myself. <laughs> And um, and this is one of my favorites. So I'm very pleased to have you here. And I just want to share a little bit more of uh, background with our listeners, because it, it's really impressive, Marianne. I'm sure you're told this all the time. You have the longest running continuous cooking show with over 1.2 million viewers every episode. Um, yes. So what what do you uh, attribute to your success and, and longevity there? Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think our viewers, first of all, everybody loves Italian food. And secondly, I think they have a familiarity with our show because it's been on the air for 20 years. We just finished um, filming our latest season, which will begin airing in the spring of 219. So there's an element of, you know, friendship, trust, familiarity, comfort, 
all of those things, I think, have gone into making Chow Italia the show that it is. Right, right. And I was impressed as well by the amount of awards you've won because your awards are often about giving back. Um, for example, you were bestowed an honorary doctorate for your dedication to teaching and preserving authentic Italian cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that drives you to do that? Well, I, I'm a stickler for traditions. I want to keep traditions alive. And, and as we all know, we live in such a fast-paced world today that a lot of our traditions are going by the wayside. I mean, a perfect example is Thanksgiving. You know, it's, a, it's kind of rare today when uh, someone is making all of the food for Thanksgiving and the whole family is gathered around the table. We live such scattered lives, and maybe it's not easy to, uh, to get together, but for me, tradition is very important, and I see traditions changing even in Italy today. So my goal is to keep those traditions alive, and I do that through my books and through my television show and our website and, and through our legacy library of housing traditional recipes that I feel are going to be lost to the next generation. Right. I love it. I love it. Um, let's get this out of the way because you say there's no such thing as, quote, Italian food. Uh, correct. Very good, Vicki. No, there is no such thing as Italian food. There's only regional food. And Italy is comprised of 20 regions. And so each of those regions is very distinct in the way that they cook when they use their local ingredients to create, quote, their recipes. So I have been saying this since the first televised Ciao Italia show. There is no such thing as Italian food. And so our focus has been to explain to our audience what exactly is regional food and how does it differ from region to region? So there's, even though I've written, this is my 13th book, I could write another book because there's so much to know about Italian cooking in general that you could never really know all of it in a lifetime. Right, right. So let's talk a little about the book because it's a lovely uh, book. I always uh, like to look at cookbooks, but I might actually cook from this one. <laughs> Yes, because the photos are so beautiful, aren't they? They are beautiful, and it's just packed full. I think you've got over 160 authentic, and that's that's a key word, authentic Italian dishes, along with like 60 uh, full-color food photographs, which are, as you said, beautifully photographed, and also some travel shots of Italy, too. Um, So tell us about why you wanted to put the book together this way. Well, I wanted this to be more than just a cookbook. So it, it is a cookbook, but it's also a travel log of my adventures in Italy, of people that I met, purveyors of different types of foods like cheese makers and artisan wine makers, bread makers. Whatever, you know, wherever I was, I was always with people who were preparing wonderful foods. So in this book, I tell you many things about some of the classic ingredients that go into making regional Italian cooking. For instance, prosciutto di parma. You know, what is it? What this ham so special? Why does it stand out? Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, which a lot of people know, but may not know how is it made, where does it come from, and why is it so important? So there are lots of stories in the book surrounding food, food culture, why it has the particular name it has, and what was my experience with that food while I was in Italy. Right. You say if you could be offered only one cheese, it would be the one you just mentioned. You're right, Parmigiano-Reggiano, but there are hundreds of Italian cheeses. So this is interesting. I have a, a section in the book that's called an alphabet of cheese. 
And so in that section, I let you know what are some of the more popular Italian cheeses and how they're used. So, you know, people think of Parmesan cheese as coming in a little green box, but really a, a Parmesan cheese is anything but that. So you'll learn what exactly is Parmesan cheese, what's Pecorino cheese, what is Asiago cheese, right. how about Montasio cheese. Right. So there's so many little pieces of information in the book that you can use in your kitchen. Right, right. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, um, I want to talk some more about food because we've got holidays coming up. I want to learn some of your favorites, Marianne. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Marianne Esposito. Her book, Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. What if you could overcome depression without the fogginess and other side effects of pharmaceuticals? Forensic and clinical psychologist Dr. Ronald J. Frey shares how in Feel Better. And yogi and author of Fierce Kindness, Melanie Salvatore August returns to share tips on how to enjoy the holiday season with practical tools to help you stay grounded and sane during family reunions. Join us Mondays at New Pacific Time, Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals at Paws a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws foster care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. Two five zero zero. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Mary Moss and Pet Tandem, we cover the world of animals. This week, November 25th, it's an encore presentation of Best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen and his sister in the studio. Together, they help listeners and their animal friends with emotional behavior and physical issues, and you can receive healing just by listening. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And welcome back, everyone. Don't you think we'd all be much happier if we played music like that all the time? It get in the mood. And my guest in this segment is Mary Ann Esposita. Esposita sorry. Um, her book is called Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy. And it's really an awesome book packed full of recipes and uh, travel log and basically her love affair with all things Italy. And I wanted to ask you, since we've got the holidays coming up, um, Mary Ann, if you have special tips about incorporating some some Italian in there, if people are so inclined. Well, you know, Italians really prefer capons to turkey on Thanksgiving, although Italians, you know, do not celebrate 
Thanksgiving, but um, we would roast capons, which are uh, a castrated chicken, actually, but it has a wonderful, wonderful flavor. But we might start out with a squash soup. So I'm actually going to make the squash soup that's in my book um, and with butternut squash, but from my garden, I also grow Italian squashes, so I tell you a little bit about planting an Italian garden uh, in the book. So we'll start Thanksgiving dinner with uh, a zuppa di zucca, a squash soup that's flavored with um, uh, some chicken broth and some Parmesan cheese, some nutmeg, and sage leaves, fried little sage leaves that go on the top of the soup. So we'll start with that, and then we'll move to the uh, capon, and of course we'll have a side dish of pasta because you always have pasta on an Italian table, and there's a wonderful recipe for white lasagna in this cookbook that you could make ahead of time. You could actually mm. make the soup ahead of time as well, so you don't have to do everything on uh, you know the frantic morning of, of Thanksgiving. Right. And for um, uh, another entree, if you're not a turkey fan, there's a wonderful glazed pork butt in this book with uh, a balsamic and fig reduction that is absolutely succulent. That sounds really delicious. good. So that's an option, too. And then there are wonderful desserts. As you mentioned earlier that you, you thought the torta mimosa was interesting, and that's yeah. a cake, a sponge cake, actually, that's made every year on March 8th for International Women's Day. So in Italy on that day, women are treated to this cake. It's called a torta mimosa because women are receive a yellow flower. The mimosa flower is yellow, and they make this wonderful cake that's filled with a pastry cream, and you actually mold the cake in a bowl. It's real easy to do. It looks like you've been in the kitchen all day, but really it does, doesn't take a lot of time at all. Yeah. And it's a wonderful, light, refreshing cake. It looks absolutely delicious. And yeah. I want to just talk a little bit more about this March 8th uh, National Women's Day uh, that you celebrate with mimosa cake. Because um, I think it's kind of timely with everything that's going on in the world right now. And this is something that began a long time ago, but then it it kind of evolved. I think it was like in 1945 when it became the Festival of Women. Yes. And so how do they celebrate? It's it's basically to showcase important roles that that women play. Yes, it's to showcase the important roles that women play in every aspect of life. And they simply, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, another Mother's Day, if you think about it that way. You know, so women are really treated very special on that day. And they're, they're given gifts and flowers and, of course, the mimosa cake and, and um, you know, just shown a lot of respect and revered. Right. Excellent. Um, I love antipasto. And you say this is very, very important in, in dining, Italian dining, because it gets the conversation going. Yes. We're always in such a rush here, you know, and we yes. often don't sit down and eat together, as, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what makes the antipasto so special? What makes it special is that this is just a, a, a taste tease, if you will, of little, little uh, courses of marinated vegetables, or it can be uh, seafood, or it could be like a little slice of uh, focaccia, it could be a little crostini that has maybe a, a chicken liver spread over the top, or it could be little tomatoes that are stuffed with tuna. You'll find all of those recipes in the in the antipasto chapter. But it's it's exactly what you said. It's a, a time for people to forget about their cell phones, their TV, and to concentrate on one another. So the word antipasto means to go before. So. 
you're anticipating by sitting down at the table and having conversation with people and you're enjoying these little tidbits of food, you're anticipating what's going to come next, not only in terms of the food that's going to be served, but also in terms of you know how you're going to react with people. And it's not unusual for Italians to spend three or four hours at the table. In fact, yesterday I was doing a book signing dinner, and it started at 5 o'clock, and we weren't finished until... Eight thirty or nine. Right. So it's it's just a gentle way of really enjoying food and one another's company. I think it's a lovely way, and you've got a um, great selection of fish because fish plays a huge part in Italian cooking. Right, fish plays a huge part because, of course, obviously, if you look at a map, you see that that Italy is a peninsula, and one of the things I did in this book because I know that there are people who have not gone to Italy, and I'm talking about regional food. I put a map in the very beginning of the book so that people could refer back to it when I'm talking about, you know, the fish of Sardinia or the fish that you find in Sicily. So I wanted people to be able to locate those regions as they were reading um, these recipes. So, and also what I included in the book was a, the Mediterranean Food Pyramid, we hear so often how important the Mediterranean diet is. And Italy, of course, is a very good example of this. If you look at the, the chart that's in the book, the Mediterranean Food Pyramid, you see that the largest category is at the very bottom, the widest part of the pyramid, where you have grains and vegetables and fruits. And then you move up and you have fish and you have um, legumes. And then as you get to the narrow part of the pyramid, you see that you eat meat just occasionally, once in a while. You don't have sweets very often. You do have olive oil as your cooking fat instead of of, uh, butter or or lard. You have wine as part of your diet. And, of course, you need to have exercise to go all along with this. Well, awesome talking with you. This is a really great book. It's just so interesting. Um, you know, even if somebody doesn't cook, it's really interesting from the travel perspective and the history perspective that you've put in there, too. Um, more than 150 recipes. Um, Mariana Spazito, I thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Vicki. Happy Thanksgiving. And to you, too. <laughs> And you can find out much more about uh, Marianne's work at Chio, Ch- sorry, Ciao Italia. Sorry, I'm reading a note here that I'd missed. I'd put type backwards. Ciaoitalia.com. Ciaoitalia.com. And, of course, her new book, Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy. My guest, Marianne Esposito. And uh, you can reach us at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair on Facebook. You can also reach me at info at conversationslive.net and at 800-495-7617. And we'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.